A quick story. Eight or nine years ago, I won a local writing award near my home in New Rochelle, New York. I was asked to attend a banquet and was told, should I desire, there'd be a table set up for me to sell and sign books. I felt weird about that, so I said, nah, that's okay. I don't need to peddle stuff. Well, I show up, and there are all these authors and all these book lovers and all these tables arranged, one next to the other, next to the other. And each table has a placard with the author's name and a stack of books and a couple of pens, except for mine, which had a single sign reading, Jeff Perlman regrets he will not be able to sign his books. It easily could have said, Jeff Perlman, douchebag. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Pete Croato, longtime journalist and the author of a debut book, From Hang Time to Primetime, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern Day NBA. This is episode number 186. Let's sing some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. Pete, first of all, thank you for doing this. I was reading something you wrote uh, recently mm-hmm. for writermagazine.com. There was a piece called Freelance Success, Got a Book Idea, Treat It Like a Pitch. This is a lead you wrote to the piece. You wrote, next month, my first book, From Hang Time to Primetime, comes out. I had dreamt of writing a book in the way some folks dream of traveling to the moon or winning Powerball. It would be nice to be in that position, sure, but getting there seemed incomprehensible, too foolish to consider. Yet here I am, and you can be here too, really. Here we sit. Your book came out on December 1st. We are in the midst of COVID. There are no book tours in the traditional book tour sense. I talked to you during a couple of times while you work on this book. You were super excited about it. It's your first book, blah, 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 blah. The book comes out. Does it live up to what you hoped? Is it like, oh, my book's out now? What? Is it somewhere in the middle? What is it like for you? First time author, busted your ass, book out. Here's the book. It's very, it was very anticlimactic because again, you, you know this better than anybody. You spend years working on a book, researching, reporting, digging, you write this thing, you, you get it out there, and you it is a it is a major accomplishment. But when the book comes out, you kind of expect there to be more. You expect there to be you know more uh, coverage. You expect there to be more of everything because you you did this big thing, and it's a little deflating to have book day come out, and it's just like any other day. But I will tell you something that kind of set me straight very quickly. Book comes out, I'm a little blah because I was expecting you know a little more. I guess hoopla, yeah. Um, which I don't, which I think I don't think there's been any hoopla since March with COVID. But so I decided to go for I decided to go for a drive, and went to the post office to ship some books out for people that I promised. And I'm standing in line. I'm standing in line, and I get to the front of the line, and you know, I'm looking at this big stack of Manila envelopes that are filled with books, and I'm shipping. And I suddenly had a flashback to 2001 when I worked at a used bookstore called Pyramid Books in Metuchen, New Jersey. And this is after I'd got, I'd left my first newspaper job and I was really, my, my, my professional career was in disarray. And at this bookstore job, every day, I would have to take books that had been ordered online that the store have, and I'd have to wheel them to the post office down the street. I'd do this twice a day. And inevitably, there was this stack of 20 books that were fall over and You'd have to rearrange them, and I'd wheel this this cart to the post office. The the post office employees would hate to see me because they had to stamp all these friggin' books. You know, I'm 24 years old, and my life was going nowhere. 
so as I'm standing with this with this very nice man putting these books on their way, I thought to myself, wait a fucking minute. This is my book that's going out to people. And I thought, you know, lighten up. It's a great moment. Enjoy this. Like this is thing that is that doesn't happen very often. So I got very grateful very quickly. And then I went to the to the Barnes and Noble downtown in Ithaca to, to see what was going on with the book there. And believe it or not, I ran into my old manager from one of my old bookstore jobs. It was just totally out of the blue. And I thought, man, like this is a sign. Like this is a sign that really like I've come a long way. And so that made me feel better. It made me really grateful and really appreciative to be in this spot. You don't seem like a whore. Like I am a whore. I am a total whore. <laughs> I am a complete whore. I've always been a whore. I will whore my books like nobody's business because it's mm-hmm. just sort of, I was raised by a dad who was a whore and I've learned how to be a whore. It seems like for you to whore is not just instinctive that you actually sort of need to think, all right, this is how I'm going to, am I misreading that? Or is that somewhat true? No, I think, I, I think I've gotten a lot better at it. I mean, every night now I'm reaching out, I'm calling or emailing people. I know I'm just the other day. My mom told me that, you know, I went to the Barnes and Noble in town. I only had one copy of your book. After my mom told me that I was on the phone at Barnes and Noble saying, Hey, you know, you know, my parents were here. I've written a book. I used to live here. You want some more copies? Happy to autograph them, whatever you need to do. How did that call go? It went well. They were very happy to hear from me. And I did the same thing with the Barnes & Noble in in Ithaca. I was like, hey, I'm an local author. If you want me to come down and sign books, happy to do it. The whoring, I'm okay with it. I think if you look at my Twitter feed, everything is just about, there's this book event. Here's this thing I'm doing. I mean, I went to a book, my first book signing, which was basically me sitting at a table at a bookstore in Ithaca, New York. Um, Hey, when was that? That was Saturday. I I was in a mask and just was in a table, just signing some books that were pre-ordered and around if anyone wanted to come by. So what was that like? It was weird because there was no indication as to why I was there. So I just looked like a goon sitting with books. But if anybody who came in who mingled by the sports section, I was asking if they want if they're interested in my book. That's how you have to be. And I'm I am not bashful about that. I mean, I am I will take help from anybody. I will help myself like you. I will talk to anybody who wants to talk about this book. So I'm wide open. I want to dissect this moment for a minute. What's the name of the bookstore? Odyssey Bookstore. That's where I was. You're at a table. Is there a sign out front that says Pete signing? No, there's no, there's no sign. There's no sign. So it's basically just me. I went in there and I signed some books that were pre-ordered. I was, I was thrilled to do that. Three books is better than no books. So I signed those books and then I just hung around for a couple of hours. And if anyone wanted a, a signed copy, I was, I was around. Look, it wasn't deflating. I know, I know, I think I know where this question is going. Cause I know you've been at your share of awful book signings. The sitting at a really nice bookstore with a copy of my book that I wrote while my wife and my daughter are getting ice cream. It was a great moment. I mean, that's that. So what? No one bought a book. So what? People kind of bristled when I mentioned that I was, oh, hey, you're interested in a sport. I don't care. I was so grateful to be here. I mean, I look, I've been in far worse situations. I was a trade magazine editor for three and a half years. A big part of my job was going to trade shows, dressed in a suit, carrying a sack full of media kits and going from booth to booth and having to sell people our magazine, going to strangers and saying, hi, are you, I'm Pete Croato. I'm the assistant editor at BRM Inc. I did that for three and a half years. So sitting at a really lovely bookstore, that's a Swedish massage. I've never understood the, um, the no sign thing. Like my first signing ever was my hometown library in Mayo Pack, New York for my first book about the Mets. Didn't tell anyone there was a signing. And I'm literally sitting in the room with my parents 
You can't have oh. a book signing without a sign. It doesn't work without a sign. I know. And I'm sitting there. The staff has been great. The book's always wonderful. But again, like there's no signage. There's really no advertising for it. It was very loosey-goosey. So, you know, so again, I mean, people who walked into this room, which hold most of the books, they just saw a goofy six foot one guy in a mask with books. Either I'm an author or I'm doing a really ridiculous research project. This is what you're saying to me is fuck Odyssey books. <laughs> That's ex- that is exactly what I'm saying. I am saying that I am I'm ta- I'm taking my talents, minimal as they are, to yeah, the Barnes and Noble on Route 13. So I'll I'll be there just sitting in the in the in the Starbucks cafe with a stack of my books for anyone who wants to sign. Very nice. Let me ask you this: I, I was thinking of doing something I've never done before, which is um, <laughs> going a little bit through your acknowledgments. You start your acknowledgments by saying, "I never spoke with David Stern. He declined multiple mm-hmm. interview requests, including one I made about six weeks before his death. I interviewed mm-hmm. some 315 people for this book. Many who worked with Stern. Blah 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 blah. I am fascinated." about your efforts to get David Stern to talk. What were they? Did you ever think you were going to get him? How'd it go? (sighs) All right. I thought I was going to get him originally because to me, I thought, well, you know, David Stern, I mean, this is, this is, this book is Rob Alley. I'm, you know, I'm, I have some clips I've, I've written for slam. This should be easy peasy. So I write, so I wrote to, um, to his assistant and within about 20 minutes, I get back a, no, David Stern's not interested. Okay. So then I tried again. I, I wrote, okay, well, all right. If he changes his mind, I'm, you know, I'm around, but would he be available to confirm details? Would he be available to, you know, double check anything, whatever? No, not interested. Okay. So after that, I had, his, I got his email address, his, his NBA email address from a writer friend of mine, who's also in the acknowledgements, Sean Fury. So Sean gave me his email address I kept peppering him with emails like repeatedly, like maybe every couple of weeks, just, just checking in. So I tried that. Then I was very lucky through my research. I uh, became a really good source was a gentleman named Mark Tomashaw at Nike, who um, is one of those guys I love because like, you never hear about people. I'm sure you've run into into folks like this. Like there are so many people who are integral parts of the sports community who you never know about. Like, movers and shakers who are not really known as movers and shakers. And Mark is one of those guys. So he trusted me for some reason. And he was like, yeah, I'll reach out to David for you. Mark planted to see with David. He still said no. So I just kept emailing and emailing. I even thought about going to New York and hanging out by the Starbucks that he frequents just to like, see if I could catch him. But I, I don't know if I don't, I just, that never came to be. So eventually I just went the honest route. I was like, look, you know, I've interviewed this many people. You're an integral part of the story. I, I really want to talk to you. And I was also a little bit jokey too, because someone told me, I think it was um, Joe Cohn, a, a friend of his, like, yeah, you know, if, you just, if you're just self-depreciating, he'll, he'll come to you. Uh-huh. So I wrote to him, I said, you know, I know that you're not, you know, you haven't been responding to my email. So if you want me to shut the fuck up, I will. Just let me know. And that got a response. And then he was like, you know, I'm just not interested. So I kept going back and forth. Then eventually he said like, well, why are you still emailing me? I'm not interested. And I said, look, you know, I just, I just think you'd be integral to the story. You know, if you want to go to my parents, ask them why I'm a pain in the ass about this. I'm sure they'll be happy to tell you. Here's their phone number. You actually gave David you know, your parents' phone number? I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I did. I said, or I said, like, I'll, I can give you their phone number. Uh-huh. So David Stern's last email to me, which is in the notes section. So like, I don't need parental acknowledgement. I'm just not interested, but thank you very much for your time. And I wish you the best of luck. So I tried for about a year and a half up to up until about six weeks before he died. And the book had already been, you know, I had already filed the first draft of the book. So I think I was pretty tenacious about it. 
you know, I don't think the book is worse for him not being in it. Now, why do you say that? I get asked that a lot when I've, uh, whatever, Kobe Bryant didn't help with my Lakers book. And in a way, I think it would have been better if he had helped me. You know, if he had talked to me, I would have had that insight. Why do you think Stern, no Stern, doesn't really make a difference for a book that concerns the era that he kind of reigned over? First, so much has already been written about him. You know, you can go to newspapers.com, you can go to sports, you can go to all these references and catch him in the moment. And the other thing, too, is that David Stern was in the NBA for, as outside counsel, as an executive as a commissioner for almost 50 years. So he had a wide swath of associates, coworkers, colleagues. They're all around and they were willing to talk. So that makes it better because you're getting observations as they happen in the, in the, in the clippings, but you're also getting the memories of the people that he worked with. You're getting these memories from people who a lot of them haven't, haven't spoken to the media ever or in years. So they're happy to hear from you. They're, they're going to be more accommodating. They're going to be, they're going to be more interested or, or more interesting. I mean, if I talk to David Stern or Larry Bird or Michael Jordan or, or Magic Johnson, who all declined, they've done this a thousand times. You know, they've heard every question they are, or most every question, and they know how to answer questions so that they can move on with their day. It would have been great to have all those guys, but I don't think they're necessary if you do the work. I mean, you're, you're proof of that. If you dig and dig and dig and you, and as you say, make the extra phone call, I really do think you will find a gold mine. It may not be the one that you envision, but it's going to be pretty significant. The commissioner before David Stern was Larry O'Brien, Larry O'Brien mm-hmm. Trophy. And you wrote, without Larry O'Brien, there'd be no David Stern and no NBA's the world knows it today. To help recreate O'Brien's second career, I'm in debt to his son, Larry O'Brien III, who's one of the first people I called. Within mm-hmm. a few days, a package arrived with documents and a biographical DVD, essentially a Larry, Larry O'Brien starter kit. Number one, how did you find Larry O'Brien III? Number two, why was he someone you called so early? And did you have expectations calling him? To answer your first question, I looked up Larry O'Brien's obituary in the New York Times, saw if he had any family members, yeah. saw Larry O'Brien III, did a kind of a, a another quick Google search, saw that he worked as a, a lobbyist in D.C., and I emailed him immediately. And I reached out to him so quickly because I really felt that there hadn't been enough written about Larry O'Brien, about who he was, about how he was as commissioner, about what he did as commissioner. And to me, I thought that would be a way I could, that would be one way I could define the book or differentiate the book from a lot of other books that cover the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s NBA. I didn't really have an expectation. I try as many people as I can, if they say no, well, okay, I'll try, I'll try again later, or I'll move on to somebody else. So my expectation was, well, I hope this yields fruit, but if it doesn't, I'll just try another route. I mean, that's, that's kind of what writers do. Reporters do. They're, they're looking for different pathways. And if one pathway is closed, you try another pathway and then you work your way back. I did not expect to get what I got when I emailed Larry Brighton III. I did not expect him to be so helpful. You mentioned you're not an insider. You're not some NBA guru. You're not Jack McCallum or Chris Ballard or any of these guys. How are you able to convince a publishing company to let a guy who has never written a book before, who's mm-hmm. not an NBA reporter, who, right. you know, isn't a super household name, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to give you money to write an NBA book that requires on inside information. How, how do you even convince him to let you do it? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I honestly think it's because it's the perspective of the book. To me, the best sports books are never really about sports. They're about history. They're about social change. They're about people. I mean, if you, if you name a great sports book, 
look at Pat Jordan's work. I mean, we're both fans. They're not about sports. They're about growing up. They're about facing your mortality. You know, they're, they're not about pitching when you're 21 or when you're 58. They're, they're about deeper themes. So I think it's two things. First and foremost is that this was framed as not a sports book, but a, it's a sports book, but it was more of just a business book, a cultural book. It was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge of different things. And it wasn't as if like I was writing, you know, about, you know, cattle. I'd written a lot of um, sports, sports stories I'm very proud of for a number of publications, Slam, Hoop, SI.com, Rollingstone.com, Vice Sports, Deadspin. I mean, I had, I had the clips. I had, I had the resume. So it wasn't as if I was starting from nothing. I had clips that showed that I could do this kind of deep reporting and take a story in different and maybe intriguing ways. I think those are the two reasons why. I did have the background to do this, even though I maybe wasn't, I'm not, you know, Jonathan Abrams or, or Jeff Perlman. We can't all be Jeff Perlman. No, we can't. We try, but we can't. It's, 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 it's only, only one person can shoulder that burden, Jeff, and it's not going to be me. I have an interesting question I've never asked anyone. Sure, go I'm ahead. I'm looking at your cover, and I think I like it. Okay. I can't tell. I'm not sure. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm, but that's not it. So I, I do not like most of my covers. I just want to say for the record, it is a part okay. of the process. It's a, so basically, for people listening, it's from hang time to prime time. It's a basketball player with the TV where his head would be. On the TV, mm-hmm. someone's holding what's supposed to be a Gatorade. The player's flying with a ball in his hair and a cheeseburger in the other hand. It's a funny cover. It's definitely a funny cover. Yeah. What was the origin of the cover and were there back and forth? Was there debate whether to put a Jordan or a bird or a magic on the cover? Like how much input did you have, if any? I had input, but I'll tell you what, I love that cover. Oh, great. I love that cover for a, couple, for a couple of reasons. First, you can see this thing from fucking space. I mean, it's got big white font. It's, sure. it's, it's orange. It's, 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 it's Spalding basketball orange. So you can see it from, you can see it from anywhere. And I think it, I think it, perp- it perfectly encapsulates what the book is about. It's about how the NBA became more, it became more than a basketball game. It became a melange of other interests. It became, it became about marrying television coverage. It became about ma- marrying corporate synergy. It became about shoes. If you look closely, the, sh- the, uh, the shoes on the basketball player are gold. So all, it's about all of these outside forces that turn the NBA into this cultural business and entertainment behemoth. So I think the I think the cover captures that the essence of that book extremely well. And the other thing I learned too is that it was modeled after a Wheaties box. It's a cover that that pops. If there's a cover with Jordan or, or Magic, I mean that's been done a thousand times. I think this is different and it's it's special and I am uh, I'm a fan of it. I will you know I, I love having it behind me. Uh, as we speak. I just want to say I am a, uh, I'm proud to have two of the worst covers ever. Number one is the hardcover of Boys Will Be Boys, which is, looks like it was made by my kid in like as a fifth grade art cutting clip uh, project. So this one gave me a lot of work. This is my Barry Bonds book. And people did not see this. Like they, the title is where San Francisco is supposed to be on Barry Bonds' uniform. So I would do radio shows and they'd say, Jeff Perlman, the author of Barry Bonds and the Making of an Antihero. And I would know the name of the book is Love You Hate Me. So people were missing the title of the book, which was a little frustrating. You did something I am fascinated by. You listed okay. everyone you interviewed. So you mm-hmm. did a list of it. I've never done that before. Not for any reason, okay. not reason. Did you do it to show like, look, there's some heft to this book? Was that? I was thinking yes. that. Yeah. Right. I did that because I wanted people to see the work. I wanted people to see what I did. 
not not as a boasting, not as a boastful thing, not like, hey, look at all these people I talked to. But I was, to me, it was all about, here's my work. Here's what I did to create a great book. Here's what I, here's the work that I put in to put in a first rate basketball book. You know, it's also why the acknowledgement section is probably one of the hardest things I had to write because I wanted it to be memorable. I wanted it to be something that people would read and maybe figure out, maybe learn how I got here. So I wanted each part of this book to be something that someone could hold on to. To, to, to put this in, in an example that I think some people might appreciate it. Whenever you saw James Brown perform, he always looked like he gave his all. Like you got a great performance, but he looked like he was performing for the first time and that his life depended on it. The, you, know, he, you know, he would frequently perform so hard and so feverishly that he needed an IV drip afterwards. Like his socks would be drenched in sweat. And I wanted people to get the same kind of vibe with this book. I wanted people to read this book and be at minimum like, wow, that was, that was a pretty damn good performance. I may not have liked all the things that he did. There were maybe a couple of songs here I wasn't keen on, but man, that was, that was something. That was, that was something worth, that was some, I, I, I'd see this again. You wrote in your acknowledgments, you wrote, Nike declined to make anyone at the company available to speak after Michael Jordan declined to participate. That sort of shit drives me crazy. Like it just. I know, I hate it. First of all, how'd you try getting Jordan through the Hornets? Through the Hornets. And then I was directed to his spokesperson at Jordan Brand Conglomerate Co., whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, and I was declined. And then, you know, again, because I'm a schmuck or I'm, I want to be honest when I deal with people because, you know, I, I, was, I didn't want to get up on the wrong foot. I talked to the PR guy there who was, again, I returned my calls. He, was, he seemed initially interested or would at least, be, at least, at least would be willing to help. I was, I was honest. I said, look, you know, Mike declined, you know, I'm, but I still want, you know, I still want to talk about the company. I still want to talk about the Jordan brand, all that stuff. I think it's still relevant. And after that, I was like, no, we can't, if Michael's not interested, we, we can't do, we can't do it. Sorry. It's like, okay. I mean, I, that, but that drives me nuts. Cause like, well, you know, I mean, you've talked to me, you know who I am. Like, you know, my intentions. I mean, if Michael declines, that's fine, but I don't know. But I don't know. I mean, I understand like he's their bread and butter. I mean, you're not, you don't want to anger the person who built the company pretty much. How'd you get Phil Knight despite the Knight? Yeah, that's, it's a good story. It's a gentleman by the name of Mark Thomas, who is, um, who was a marketing executive at Nike for like 30 years. So I came across Mark because I was, as part of my research, I was reading as many books as I could. And what I was doing was I was jotting down names of people I had never heard of before. I'd never seen just to try them out, to see if they'd want to talk. So in reading uh, a really great Michael Jordan biography, an early one, this never gets mentioned, but it's called Taking to the Air by Jim Naughton. It's a really great book about, Jordan, about the first leg of Jordan's career before he got super big and won all the championships. So in this book, uh, Jim talks to Mark Tomaschow, and I saw this name. I thought, I don't know that name. I don't know who this guy is. So I thought, all right, well, let me try him. So I looked him up on LinkedIn. He seemed reputable. It seemed like there was his background matched perfectly with the, with the book's timeline. So I reached out to him on LinkedIn. I wrote, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm working on this book. I'd love to talk to you about Nike and learn about how, learn about, learn about more about the company for this book that I'm working on. Can we chat? Mark agreed. And he said, oh, let's talk over Zoom. I, I want to hear more about this. So we talked. And it went well, um, aside from the fact that um, it was not a good idea for me to have a, a, a Walt Clyde Frazier Puma poster in my background, which he saw. But we got along great after that. We got along great despite that, pardon me. 
So the conversation ends and he says, all right, well, I'll participate in this. I'll participate. I mean, I'm happy to talk to you, but let me see who else I can get. Cause I have a pretty good batting average. Let me, let me see who else is interested. So Mark's agreeing to participate, open up the door for a countless wave of Nike associates and employees who were willing to talk. So because of Mark's, I guess, betting, I was able to talk to Tinker Hatfield, who's the legendary Jordan shoe creator. I talked to Bill Davenport, who helped create the Spike and Mike ads that were so prominent in the 80s. Spoke to Gary Way, who's an executive at Nike and uh, the NBA, who was great. Um, who else? Just, I mean, Mike Castor, uh, Scott Bedberry, like all these business titans. And I, I don't know if you know this, in every story, in every, in every story, there's always like a mule, like a guy who pull, a person who pulls you through and it's like, mm-hmm kind of opens up a lot of doors. Among the people that Mark connected me with was Lisa McKillops, who was Phil Knight's secretary. So I just wrote an email, said, hi, you know, again, I'm working on this book. I'd love to know more about these few things. Would Phil Knight be available to talk to me for 20 minutes, 25 minutes? Just, you know, keep it casual. Within a day, he's like, yeah, he'll talk. Then he, you know, he called me and we spoke twice. So it was... That was a real stroke of luck. That's how I talked to Phil because, you know, because I, I made the effort to read a book and find a name that may have gotten lost to the floorboards of time and call him. And he winds and Mark, who's been, who was great, winds up kind of helping me talk to a lot of major players at night. One of the things I think that gets people don't think about, we always think like, Oh, Phil Knight, he must be so busy or, Oh, Phil Knight, he's not going to have time. I have found most people in that position are freaking not just happy to talk, but kind of thrilled to talk because they're kind of Mm -hmm. bored and they're used to being busy and now they're not busy. And there's only so much golf you can play and there's only so much TV you can watch and not for nothing. Although this wasn't your case when you were reporting it, we're in the midst of a fucking pandemic and we can't go anywhere. So. Right. Right. Exactly. I just think like it's over. And another thing I want to say is you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. I forgot is obituaries because I do have a lot of young writers who listen to this. Obituaries are gold mines because um, yeah, they're great. They list all the relatives. It's basically a who's who of this person's life. So obituaries are huge. Yeah, the Phil Knight thing. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. But my whole theory is like, why not? Like, why not try Phil Knight? Sure. Like, why not try Herb Simon? You know, who who owns the Indiana Pacers? Like, why not? You know, why not try Jeannie Butt? I mean, try these people. Like, what what do you have to lose? Like, they say no. Who cares? There's a there's a great anecdote. I got your uh, I don't know if you're a of a rock, if you're a rock and roll fan, but do you remember the old Twisted Sister video for We're Not Going to Take It? Come on, of course. Okay, if you know the video, Mark Metcalf, the actor who was in National Blues Animal House, who played Niedermeyer, is in the video. He plays the father who is tormented for like four minutes and thirty five seconds. So there's an interview that was on an MTV documentary. That I, I'll never forget this quote. Dee Snyder was, was talked about that twist about that video for we're not going to take it. And he was, you know, he's talking about how they, they cast it. And he said, you know, he talked about, he talked about the casting. He said, you know, I'm talking to the director, Marty Callner. And, and um, you know, I said, you know, it'd be great if we had a Mark Metcalf type, like a Niedermeyer type to kind of like play this role. Like it'd be great. Like he'd be fantastic. And Marty Callner says like, what's Mark Metcalf doing? Curing cancer? Like this column, let's get him over here. Right. And that's kind of like the attitude that I have with anything like just, you know, you know, these people are not busy all the time. Like it's worth a shot to try. I mean, if you don't try, I mean, 
if the worst you hear is no. And the best result of this, is you talk to Phil Knight twice, you know, or George Gervin or whomever. It's great. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey. Who's fighting to stop the steal? We need to stop the steal. Please tell me you're joking. Stop the steal! Stop the steal! I thought you hate Trump. I do, but we need to stop the steal. Right now, if your listeners go to 503-sports.com, they can steal all sorts of throwback merchandise. Hats, t-shirts, sweatshirts. It's all so inexpensive. It's like a steal. I don't get it. Don't you want people to go to 503-sports.com and steal merchandise? You love that place. No, because if they do, they'll have nothing left for me. So your interview section is a, a fascinating who's who of weird people. Not weird people, <laughs> but like, oh, there's Terry Cummings and there's Wayne Embry and there's Russ <laughs> Bankton, my older roommate from Slam. There's DJ Jazz. Yes. Jeff, my favorite yes. by far, by far, because I am friends with Pete Nice from Third Base, is you have mm-hmm. an MC search listed as someone you interviewed, which leads to the important question, why the fuck did you interview MC Search for a basketball book? Because he's a sneakerhead. This book deals with sneakers. You can't do a book on sneakers and not talk to Russ and not talk to, to MC Search and, you know, not talk to Tinker Hatfield. So uh, MC Search is a, is a big, big sneakerhead. There's a great, and again, this is the benefits of reading. There's a great book by Bobito Garcia. Where'd you get those? Which is about New York City sneaker culture. And he has a who's who of folks in there who talk about growing up in the five boroughs and searching for kicks in like RV, Army Navy stores and, you know, drug stores. And MC Search is quoted extensively in that book. He also grew up in, in New York, which is, yeah. a, which is where hip hop and basketball kind of, you know, uh, kind of combined. See, I'm surprised the person you didn't sing out was Ruth Pointer of the Pointer Sisters. Why did you talk to a Pointer Sister? Because the Pointer Sisters, I'm so excited, was featured in NBA Entertainment um, commercials for It's Fantastic. How'd you get Ruth Pointer? IMD Pro, 75 bucks a year, and it has publicist PR inform- agent information for just about any celebrity soon you can think of. So Interesting. IMDB Pro. Interesting. Which is which was which was it, it's a it's a gold mine. You can find pretty you can pretty much contact any actor, director. You can, get, you can contact their, their, their folks that way. So their, their PR folks and handlers. And yeah, Ruth Pointer was, um, yeah, I wanted to talk to Ruth Pointer because, you know, the Pointer sisters, uh, I'm, a, I'm so excited. It was a key part of those. It's fantastic commercials. And I wanted to find out, like, what's, what was it like to be in that? What was it like to have your song featured in that commercial? What did you like about it? And to Ruth Pointer's credit, she indulged me for 15 minutes. And that was a, that was a worthwhile phone call. Let me ask you a final question because it's requisite for this podcast. You alluded yes. to it. You have been a reporter mm-hmm. for a long time. You've worked in the business a long time. Uh, yes. What's the biggest dick experience you've had with someone? Well, Bill Lambeer was a pretty big dick. What happened? But, oh. Well, I, I interviewed him for an, an article I, I wrote for Grantland about Marvin Gaye's national anthem at the 1983 NBA. That was All-Star a great story. Game. That was a great story. Thank you. And that, that was the piece that inspired me to write this book because I felt that was the pivot point for the, or the divider between the old MBA and the new MBA. So that's what started the book. But I talked to Bill Ambeer and he was just brusque and surly and could not have cared less. That wasn't the worst experience though. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a, I hope funny, not too long story. Okay. Yeah. When I was a newspaper reporter, I was a horrible newspaper reporter for a Gannett paper called the Courier News. I was a bad, I was a bad, bad, bad reporter, just terrible. In a long line of terrible experiences, the, the worst was covering a 
was covering a court case and I wrote, wrote the story up and I confused the term. I used the term murder when I should have used homicide. So it sounds like a little mistake, but that's huge right. in stories like this. So I get a phone call from the managing editor who proceeds to just read me the riot act for like five minutes. Just, I mean, eviscerates me. I'm 23 years old. I'm on the verge of tears because it's just, it's a terrible job. I'm terrible at it. And I feel like my life is just slipping through my fingers. So then the phone rings again. It's the county prosecutor who is at the center of the story. He rings me out for five minutes. He just like completely just gives me both barrels, screaming, ranting. How could you do this? I'm just like quivering, crying blob of early 20s angsty jelly. I'm just ready to just join the French Foreign Legion. Then the phone rings for a third time. I'm actually, I'm picking up the phone and I'm like, hello. Like I'm just, I, I I am so prepared to get lambasted for a third time. But it was actually the the fire uh, commissioner of Hunter County, <laughs> um, so it wasn't somebody looking to lambast me for a third time. That's the most memorable vitriolic exchange I've had with not only a source but with an editor. I survived again. That's why you know I was talking earlier about about sitting at a bookstore in Ithaca, New York, and no one's coming to the table. No one knows who I am. That is a slice of lemon meringue pie compared to where I've been before and what I've done. And that's why I'm just so grateful to have this book out and to be talking to you and to have people, I hope, getting something out of this. This is, this is a dream fulfilled. So I am, I'm thrilled to be talking to this book to one person, five people, whoever will have me. So I am, I'm thrilled to be where I am. I want to thank today's guest, Pete Corrado, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Pete on Twitter, at Pete Corrado. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.